Hello, it's Peter Ayers. And here we are, episode 16 of the first season of Stages. I've got 24 planned for you uh, this year. Lots of exciting guests still to come, following the many terrific guests that we've had thus far. So now to today's guest. A Facebook post from actor Tom Campbell recently garnered much traction. He cited that the entertainment industry was making much-needed advances in embracing racial, gender and sexual diversity in its casting decisions, but was failing in its representation of actors he described as having non-normative bodies. Tom was born without a hand. Not that this has ever been a concern for him in his pursuit of an acting career. It has posed some interesting encounters along the way from parties attempting to establish their understanding of the norm, however. Tom has always tackled this with his perfect charm and engaging sense of humour. Graduating from NIDA, he's constructed a career boasting a lengthy CV and two Sydney Theatre Awards. He's played classical repertoire, one-man shows, television, stand-up comedy and recently embraced his first musical, more of which he hopes will follow. Always philosophical, witty and frank, he's the perfect guest. Here's my conversation with actor Tom Campbell. We did a production of Cinderella in my must have been a year one and I was cast as Prince Charming and I remember in the scene improvising and kissing the girl on the lips which probably wouldn't go down well in this climate we were what six and um, I remember the class uproariously laughing and I think at that point I went this is the this is what I want to do um, but you'd, ov- you'd obviously obviously seen um, Prince Charming in a Disney film do that I must have yeah yeah, my mum and dad were very... They had a lot of people in the theatre. My dad's best friend was Jamie Lewis, who was a big lighting designer um, at the MTC. And so they went to the theatre all the time. And I think... We, we didn't have a TV growing up either. So that my only kind of artistic things that I ever saw was when I went to my neighbour's, Eileen's, when she was babysitting us, and she'd just play Sound of Music and Shirley Temple films on repeat. So that was my... That explains a lot, I, I'd suggest. Um... So that was my kind of first um, foray into kind of the arts, those two, those two films. But uh, theatre, yeah, I, I don't know, I joined a little group in Tassie when I was there and started doing little kind of youth theatre things. Why didn't the family have a television? I don't know. I think they thought it would be best for us to read a lot more and listen to the radio as a family. As soon as my parents separated, they both got about eight TVs each. So it was a thing they were holding to as a, holding on to as a couple. But since I got a TV from the age of 13, I haven't been pulled away from it. And I don't think I've read a book since. It's, I'm catching up. Oh <laughs> No, I have read books, but I'm, I'm more of a viewer than a reader. Were you a big reader as a child? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of Asterix and Enid Blyton and Roald Dahl. Um, but I kind of stopped reading once TV was introduced. I'm I'm very much a visual medium person. Um, I watch a lot of crap, Real Housewives and and talent shows. They're my kind of two go-tos to watch on TV. Um, I discovered... um, Oh, this is too much. We're getting off track now, but but crap TV. Uh, Have you seen Finding Prince Charming? Oh, my gosh, I watched the last two episodes. First two episodes. They are vulgar. Aren't they terrible? And that main guy is a porn star, apparently. Apparently he Mm. was, yes. He's very attractive. (laughs) (laughs) Puerto Rican, hey? (laughs) Um, So, why did you move to Tasmania? I think my dad always had the dream of bringing his kids up in Tassie. Um, So, we moved there when I was seven. And actually, I still say this... I say it to this day, I think Tasmania's education system and as a place to grow up for kids is absolutely brilliant. It's a different type of education. You you do years, you do primary school, then you do years seven to ten at high school and then you go to a college matriculation college and you get to choose all your own subjects which either leads you into an industry or leads you into the uni course that you want to do. So it gives you a, a sense of independence earlier on which I always think is a is a much better thing than struggling through your HSC up until year 12 I always found that looks horrible now um, you were born without a left hand mm-hmm. what were the circumstances surrounding that um, my mum is a registered nurse and she I think as simple as got an infection when she was working on a ward once um, which stopped the growth in the womb so I don't think they pre-knew it was there because I don't think they would have I don't know if the scans were that 
detailed in those days. So when I was born, I was born without a left hand. Um, yeah, yeah. As simple as that. So simple as that. Just a, an infection caught on the ward. Yeah, I mean a lot. There's that thing. I don't even know the term. Thalidomide, is it? Yes, yes. But I'm post that. I'm yeah, I'm absolutely. 80, that would, baby. That was a drug which. Uh, no, um, pregnant mothers took to ward off uh, morning sickness. Yes, yeah, so I'm post that, so a lot of people think, if I think I'm a bit older, that might be it. But no, I think it's just as simple as, as that. I have never really gone into much kind of questioning on it, because my parents were pretty blasé about the whole thing. It was never really made an issue of, which was great. My mum tells a story of when, you know, a couple of days into, she was still in the hospital, and I'm... This nurse, this midwife had been looking after her while she was pregnant, but she wasn't actually in the room for when um, I was born, came into the room and popped her head in. She said, now, Jill, I think something something might have gone awry with your son, something terribly, something terribly wrong. And mum kind of shrugged her shoulders and pointed over to the cot. And this midwife walked over, looked in the cot and went, ah, is that all? And <laughs> my mum has kind of kept that. Um, thought and it really is kind of is that all I, that's the way I look at it and that's the way I was brought up which I'm very thankful for did you come up against any obstacles as a kid look I always think about this I don't think I did because I can't remember I can't remember ever being bullied I can't remember it being made a thing of I can't remember ever feel feeling self-conscious about it I remember once a young I was in primary school I was probably in year five and I was pulled into the principal's office. I just find this funny. And there were this mother and father of this young girl who I'd never even seen. It was at the school, but she was probably in year two. And um, the principal said to me, now you've been terrorising this young girl. I said, I don't know who this girl is. And the parents were kind of scarily looking at me. And and I was I was basically told off for existing in the playground. And this girl was petrified of me and my lack of hand. I think that's the one thing that I remember from my kind of pre-adult years that really shocked me and stuck with me. But other than that, I just got on with things and it wasn't really ever an issue, as as I remember. Unless they're deep down. <laughs> Still to be yeah, honest. Exactly. Um, so you get involved in community theatre in Tasmania? You do a lot of amateur theatre? I did, yeah, I got into the Gilbert and Sullivan Society of Tasmania and we did um, a production of Ruddy Gore, one of GNS's lesser known works. And then I, they did a production of My Fair Lady. Um, the college I went to, Rosney College actually, it wasn't a performing arts college but it had a very strong drama department and got a lot of funding from the government. And there's a lot of us went, who went to, Essie Davis is a Rosney College graduate, Robin McLeavy was in my year. A lot of stage managers, a lot of designers. So the last two years of my schooling in Tassie was very... We did Beggar's Opera, Our Country's Good. Like, we were doing full, amazing plays and, and, and we were being stretched by this... Um, stretched artistically by this uh, director called Keith Bates, who... Um, I don't think any of us knew what we were saying, but we gave great performances. I remember that. We were technically very proficient because he basically pulled these performances out of us, but we didn't know what was happening inside. There was no kind of truth to it. But I think that that's where I got my technique before I even went to drama school. Um, but yeah, I did community theatre with the GNS and then a lot of a lot of shows at this Rosny College school. Yeah. So when did you decide that you might like to have a career as an actor, work in the profession? Always wanted to. Always? Yeah. I don't... I think from primary school I wanted from to From the time you were Prince Charming? Yeah. Hmm. I had a little book where it said, what do you want to do each year? It had your school photo and I'd written actor, actor, actor. And then one year I think I wrote teacher and then back to actor, actor, actor. It was always what I wanted to do. Um, yeah. Being in Tassie, does much tour there? Was there an opportunity to see many live performances? Yes, uh, we, Bell Shakespeare came every year, so it was the kind of era where Joel Edgerton was working with them a lot. I saw John Gaydon and John Bell a lot. Um, I remember Theatre Royal, that gorgeous theatre in Hobart, um, had a little program called Culture Vulture, and you, you handed in your tokens, so you got to see, I think, three out of the six professional shows they bring in each year. I saw Bangara came a lot, which was blew my mind every time. Um, and... Um, what's his name? Uh, Tyler Coppen brought Liarbird. Oh, yeah. That's Sir Robert Helpman. Yes. And I remember seeing that and I, I went, oh, wow, that's... 
that's brilliant acting and that's what I want to do. I, I still remember that being an incredible show um, and probably a bit affirming of what I wanted to do again. Um, I was really young for my year during schooling. I was like six days off being in the year below me. So I was born June 24th. So I was 17, literally 17 and, um, and a half when I finished um, high school. So I thought, well, I'm not going to get into NIDA. I'm far too young, but I'll just audition this year to see what happens and get a vibe of how it works. And I remember this Keith Bates guy saying, well, you won't get into NIDA. You might get into VCA. You know, they're a bit abstract. You might get into VCA. I don't know why he said that. What, what, was that a reflection on your talent or how he perceived you to be? I feel like perceiving my hand. I actually think he right. thought NIDA's shiny and, sh- you know, stars are made there, but VCA might want to have an idea. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's a character man. Yes, exactly. Yes, rather than a, a soapy star. Yes. So I auditioned for VCA, didn't get anywhere, was devastated, thought it was all over. Still had my NIDA audition to come. I actually really wanted to do Whopper Music Theatre, so I auditioned for there as well, didn't get in there. But I just kept getting through the rounds at NIDA and then at the end of the auditions they said, we really like you, we would love to have you, but it'll be next year. So... Um, and in Tasmania, when someone gets to the callbacks or shortlist for NIDA, it's a very big deal. It was like you become the talk of the town. So there was a young girl who'd um, been on the shortlist as well. And then, um, so I was just living high on, great, well, I'll go to NIDA next year. But I'd heard that story before. They say that a lot. You'll get in next year. Anyway, so I took it with a grain of salt. And then one afternoon I came home and my f- I was on the phone to my friend and I hung up and it rang. You remember that, how they just rang Straight back away. at you and you thought it was a something to do with the phone and I picked it up and went hello and Carlton Lamb who was one of the um, tutors said uh, Tom uh, we'd like to take you this year I, I don't think I've ever had more adrenaline in my, in, in my body at that point and I ran downstairs called my mum she bought a bottle of champagne on Salamanca and screamed out my son got into night <laughs> <laughs> and so the next two months was just about kind of moving to Sydney but I was still a ch- I was 17 and a half I was very young um but yeah, and also very lucky, I think. Um, but you're obviously talented as well, or they saw something in you that... Yeah, Tony Knight definitely saw something in me. Um, apparently he came back to NIDA and said, well, I found the most talented actor I've ever found. He's got one arm. That's what he was telling the entire school. And when I arrived at NIDA, all the third years were like, well, you do have an arm, you just don't have that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah I, yeah, I wonder what I would be doing if I hadn't got into NIDA Maybe I'll audition the next year, but, you know, um, yeah, lucky. Well, yes, and, and if you'd auditioned the next year or the year after, something eventually would have happened. Some training institution would have um, taken you in, I'm sure. Hopefully. I wonder what... I mean, the thing is, you get stuck in Tassie and the, and the big move to the mainland by yourself is a big... That's what we call it in Tasmania, the mainland. The big move by yourself is much harder, I think. So I was I was given a... I know, a leg up by, yeah, I wonder. I always wonder what would have happened if I hadn't gotten to NIDA then. What sort of roles were you cast in at NIDA? Um, kind of the character stuff. Um, I did, my, my big lead role was Costa and the Seagull, directed by Richard Cottrell, yeah, at the beginning of second year. Um, and uh, so I did that. I did a I did the dad in Saved, the Edward Bond play. I jumped around. I loved it. I mean, every time it was a totally different character. Um, I, I feel like I was one of the stronger actors in the year, so um, I had a great time. And I, what I always say about training is that the good actors kind of stay the same and the so-so actors come up to the good actors. So it's a little unfair. You don't really learn much. You get technique, obviously, and I always say voice is the thing you walk out of even if you don't want to have learned anything your voice is going to be much stronger just from the the over and over training that you do um what else did I do can't remember oh um Nick Enright wrote a play for our year country music he was very ill towards the end and he wrote a play that was to open the uh the new theatre the new parade theatre yeah and so um I played a racist um, fencing contractor who was building all the fence of the detention fences of the detention centre. Um, had some choice lines in that, um, but yeah, our year actually was featured on that 
doco. Oh, there was a drama famous school. yes drama school documentary. Yeah. What, so. so what was that like as students? I mean, you're quite vulnerable, I guess, going through a training institution like like NIDA. But at the same time, you you know all actors are whores. They want the um, mm-hmm. the attention. Yeah. Yes, they so do. there's that that twist. So what sort of experience was that? Well, they had started. So um, a company called Hilton Cordell, who were a kind of savvy documentary kind of maker for the ABC, got the go-ahead to make this documentary for NIDA, which that people had been trying to get in for years, and they got the go-ahead. So they were filming the first years and the third years. That was their idea, them leaving and them coming into the school. And so they'd started at the auditions in Sydney, and they'd filmed a lot of people, and they were probably following about 10 people at the beginning of our year because they'd watched them through the auditions, and they were just going to whittle it down to focus the documentary. And me as a little star fucker <laughs> worked out very quickly that I wanted to be on this documentary and so kind of sided with the people that were being followed and got picked up as one of the four that they ended up following on this documentary. But you, um, would, you would have had a, an interest factor as well, I suppose, with your hand? Yeah, well, look, quite quickly, I think the series was bought by Channel 7, so it became a little bit more commercial, and the critiques of the documentary was it became a bit like ER, because it was about me getting my prosthetic hand, Romy getting her braces, Zoe giving up smoking and dealing with her nodules, and Anthony dealing with his depression. And that was kind of... It wasn't really about the training so much, it was about the drama of the kids outside the school. Um, so yes, it was definitely an interest factor from them. Have one one-handed boy from Tasmania getting a prosthetic hand to, you know, help his career. It became more of a a reality show almost, didn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It was around the time of pop stars, so yeah, it turned from a hard-hitting documentary to a reality show pretty quickly, I think. So how long um, since you've graduated? Since you've been in the industry? I graduated in two thousand and two. So. 16 years wow yeah it's interesting isn't it um every year you're out to look at the the other people in your year to see who is still a part of the industry who has decided to leave it uh are there many of your year still acting yeah um i was saying this the other day there's about three hollywood stars i like to call them one of them is on the lead on hawaii 50 alex o'loughlin so he's been making big good money for a while. Boyana Novakovic, do you know her? Absolutely. She, um, oh, she went to... She went to McDonald College. Yeah. And um, is it Insight? No, no. Intellect, no. It starts with yeah, an I. with Alan Cumming. Yes. Instinct. Instinct. Which is a big hit now. And Will Traval as well, who's working a bit over there. And there's a, probably about four or five of us still doing bits of professional work, indie theatre, that sort of stuff. But they usually say, after five years, ten of you will still be working. After ten, maybe five will still be working. So maybe we're above the average at, I don't know, who knows. Um, was your lack of hand um, an issue for NIDA? Did they try to uh, change you in any way? Or Well, yeah, look, quite quickly the head of the school came up to me. Obviously they would have had conversation about it, and I, conversations about it. I think it's indicative also of that time in the year 2000, I was basically said, we're going to get you a prosthetic hand. And I hadn't even heard of that. I didn't even know that that was something that would really be an issue. Um, and as a 17-year-old kid, I was like, oh, yeah, okay, sure, I'll, I'll get a prosthetic hand. So I had it. I'd never really liked it because it was. I felt like I was faking on stage because I had this big plastic hand that couldn't move. But I knew it made... Um, made me more aesthetically pleasing for a general public that's a that's a terrible statement but I, I think ultimately that's why I was given it I mean in the climate we're in now about diversity I want that would never happen I don't think um, so it's interesting basically subconsciously I was being told oh no you won't work in this industry unless you have a hand which is is what the whole diversity thing is at this stage so um, but apart from that, they did encourage me to wear it. Um, but if I didn't want to, I didn't have to. It was just kind of a tool to help me train and 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 reveal, you know. Yeah, they always made it my choice. But in this, the fact of just getting it for me, subconsciously they were telling, telling me, you should wear this, otherwise you probably won't work in the industry. Now that I think about it, yeah. Have you still got it? Um well, I took it to Edinburgh to do my comedy show and threw it around the stage. So it's a bit broken now. But I randomly, I just <laughs> thought, I better get it. I'm going to get another one. And I'll check in if it's free. And I got another one made for me last year. It's still sitting in the cupboard. I, I kind of have made the choice not to really wear it. 
um, anymore. I used to wear it a lot for commercial castings because that is such an aesthetically kind of commercial world. And I say, you know, I'd rather earn $15,000 in an ad than make a political statement. But now I've taken to just not wearing the hand at all for anything, unless it's a joke or it's part of a show. Uh, and since I've done that, I've, I haven't got an ad. I got about five ads before I left for London wearing the hand. And since I've been back, I have not worn the hand and I haven't got one single ad. So Well, that's telling. I think it's telling. It could just be how it is, yes. but I think it is telling. You're less talented since you came back from London. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so um, historically, too, I, I guess you're probably the first actor that they'd taken in for training with a physical disability. Uh, phys- yes, yeah, so it was Sophie Gollan, I think he was in Kate Blanchett's year, was deaf, I think. But physically, yeah, as far as I know, there may have been some that weren't as obvious, but yeah, something outwardly different. Yes, maybe. Yes, maybe I was. You talk about that little girl in the playground who just didn't cope with you and assumed that, you know, the principal then had to have a word to you. Were there any students in your year or at NIDA who just couldn't cope? How How did the other students treat you? Fine. I'm the first person to make people feel comfortable about my hand because I know that's an easier way to get through life. So I will, I will make jokes of it or call someone out on their pre- prejudice is the wrong word, but if I sense it awkwardness ignorance or-, or ignorance about something, I'll call them out on it um, in a very joking, fluffed up way so it doesn't cause too much conflict. But that happened very quickly in our year and my, I love the people in my year. It was not even an issue. They, they kind of became defensive about me wearing the hat. They didn't want me to. Kind of, they became kind of my little squad of supporters um, in those conversations. Uh, a couple of months ago, you wrote a very poignant Facebook post about diversity and it got a lot of traction. Uh, what motivated you to write that post? So, yeah, I wrote this post about this whole uh, diversity movement's the wrong term, but diversity within the industry has become this big thing and primarily about ethnicity at this point. And I just felt as the diversity thing becomes kind of celebrated and people are patting themselves on the back like, oh, we're achieving diversity now and we, you know, we're not ticking boxes anymore. We're not just casting indigenous people because we need to get some funding. Like that's how offensive I felt it was for a long time. And now we're at a point where people are just casting the best people for the roles. I just feel like Disability, and I'm not, I don't want to speak for every single disability, is a massive umbrella term. Um, I just felt like, as someone that is working in the industry, I could make a statement about I feel like disability, the disability movement is being left behind in this diversity chat. Um, so it was really spurred on from actually a casting agent saying, You know how diversity's in right now? Um, it was kind of spurred on from that, and I just made some statements of like, If there aren't if we aren't visible, if all the diversities aren't visible on stage, then how are we going to move forward as a, I suppose, a human race? You know, we have to start to embrace everything. That was that was my driving. It wasn't really from a point of view of me like, oh, I should get more work. It wasn't about that. It was about stop patting ourselves on the back, um, thinking we've achieved diversity because we haven't touched some of them at all. Well, well, the theatre and screen industries have made some strides in embracing diversity across ethnicities and genders and sexualities. But do you think it's, it's got a long way to go yet before, in your words, non-normative bodies are widely accepted? Well, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a long road in the sense that you have to start somewhere and you need to go through that transitional period of box ticking and putting people on the stage that people might feel uncomfortable looking at or not really understanding why they've been cast in that role we have to go through that kind of offensive transitional period to get to a point where we're just casting the best people for the roles. Um, and it's educating the industry, but it's also educating audiences. I mean, I know that recently uh, you're performing in a musical and a woman approached you in the foyer and asked, were you playing a Vietnam vet because yeah. of your lack of hand? Yeah, and she wasn't being offensive about it. She just kind of didn't understand why I'd be on stage if it wasn't about my hand as opposed to just me being a talented performer. And I think that is telling in the sense that if general public are not really understanding why I'm on the stage, I'm going, there are not enough of us visible for them just to go, oh, that's how the world is, because that is how the world is. 
diversity is, you know, the world is very diverse and we need to reflect that on our stages and screens. Um, I was in London a couple of years ago. I went to the Globe and I saw a, um, uh, a female actor with uh, an amputated arm playing one of the witches mm. in, in Macbeth. Um, there's a danger also that people with non-normative bodies are going to be cast as, as, as the villains or the, the hideous creatures or something, isn't it? Mm. Um, we really need to work at um, opportunities where we embrace everybody. Anybody is able to play Hamlet. Yes, yeah. Or a leading character. Yeah. I mean, I played Richard III a few years ago, probably 10 years ago before I left for London, and I made a point of Richard III because he talks about having a withered hand, which I thought, well, that's me. I've got that. And all the other things they call him, a toad, all of that stuff, are projections of the people calling him that. They call. So I just played him physically as myself. I didn't do a hunch. I didn't do anything. I was just, I held up my hand in that first speech and, and then just kind of got on with the show. And therefore I thought I was making a statement about people's perceptions and their projections onto people with disabilities or non-normative bodies. Um, yeah, I mean, as I say, it's a transitional period. Sure, the, you know, you have to tick boxes and feel like, it feels like you're getting funding if you put a person with a disability on stage. But I'm, I'm driving towards the utopian world of just cast the best actor for the role so that audiences don't have to question why they're on the stage. They're just like, well, he's the best actor for the role. And we're getting there with ethnic, ethnicity, but I don't think the conversation's even begun with disability. And that's my point. Mm. Um, you need to... Drama schools not, need to start taking in people with physical differences even if they are bad actors. We've dealt with that with ethnicities for years. Bad actors who are different types of ethnicities have got into drama schools, but until... that, It takes about 15 years for great actors to come through because they've seen people like themselves on the screen who may not be that talented, but who cares? It's about inspiring young people who don't think they can even be part of an industry because they don't see themselves um, by allowing, you know differences on stage well you think you know it wasn't so long ago where colorblind casting was causing such a furor people just couldn't cope with yep. different ethnicities being cast in various roles but you know that was a process of education and now it's sort of people don't blink twice exactly but i i kind of i remember being in third year and we went to an stc forum with casting directors and someone brought up the question of colorblind casting and the room just went so tense it was very awkward and no one knew how to really deal with it and someone one of the casting agents brought up one example of a um indigenous actor being cast in a role that was just it wasn't she wasn't supposed to be indigenous she was just the best actor and it was a great answer but we all knew in the room that was just the one example um and i've watched over now the 15 years since that meeting since that forum it it's working its way through to where it is now which is great there's ways to go but we need to start with with disability so you graduate from NIDA and you work as a, a professional for a number of years and then you take yourself off to London for further study. Yeah. Look, I remember the moment. I was working quite a lot, probably 2008. I remember I was doing Titus Andronicus with John Bell for the Bell Shakespeare and QTC at the Opera House. And there was a great STC production down the hall and we're all at the Opera Bar and there's a well-known actor, who I will not name, who works all the time who at that point was probably in his late 30s. And I looked at him and I had this fear of like, oh, I could just keep doing this, working a couple of shows a year and and um, I need to I need to go overseas now before I, I don't do it and, and regret it for the rest of my life. So I just put into... I thought I, I didn't have an ancestry visa. I wanted to go to New York, but London was easier to get to. So I thought, I'll get two years on my youth mobility visa, but I'll study for a year. And so I, um, I, I've always loved music theatre. I've always wanted to do music theatre. So I thought, well, I might as well just do a one-year music theatre course. And um, got into Mount View, which is a very well-renowned music theatre school, acting school as well, but they're more well-known as a music theatre school. And got, got in, got a scholarship, and then just moved to London, like, kind of overnight. And it was amazing I'm and now I will never have that regret and that's kind of my driving force for having 
gone then. I remember Kevin Jackson saying to me, you left at the wrong time, you idiot. You, were, you had a lot of heat around you at that point. And I went, well, so be it. It's fine. It's fine. I've, I've had that life experience now. Well, it didn't take much to stoke up the fires when you got back. Still, it's still it's still stoking. <laughs> um, so you end up in London. You end up in Downton Abbey, yes. which I was thrilled to see. There. Yes, it's Captain Smiley. <laughs> oh. Captain Smiley. Great. Tell me about the casting process for that. That look strangely, it's the only role I've ever played that's been about my hand. But I was happy to do it for a for a big paid um, British well known TV show. Um, I was working at a theatre in town at the, on the bar and a young girl who was an usher there worked for an agency and she came in and said, there's a role that's come through on Down Nabby for a, um, an amputated shoulder, soldier who's had his hand amputated. You should, you should go for it. And my agent at the time was pretty useless. So I wrote to them and said, have you done this? And they went, yes, of course, we put you up for that. But I wrote to the casting agent myself, um, got in the room. And I think they were just shocked that someone could could act I think they were struggling to find someone and then all of a sudden this guy came in and and they just kept on saying to me can you do it again your accent's really good can you please do it again and I did it about five times and they were kind of just confused as to that I could do a kind of flawless RP accent at that point anyway I walked out of the room thinking well if I don't get that that'll be I should probably give up acting um anyway I got the role and um yeah it was great I got to shoot out of the house all my, I had a big scene with Edith and um, and then I didn't meet Maggie Smith but I met the entire rest of the family And uh, Were you a fan of the show? I hadn't seen it at that point right. The first season I think it just wrapped uh, finished on TV and I'd missed it but I knew once I'd said oh I just got down to Nabby on Facebook one of those bragging posts and the response was so huge for people. Oh my God, it's my favourite show. And still to this day, people go, wow, God, you're in Downton Abbey. I was in it for 35 seconds, I think my scene is. But still, it's my probably my biggest international credit. Um, so, and it is a, you know, it's in, an international credit. Um, you don't have to give me figures. But, but over there for a TV show like that, do they pay better than than here? They do. And they paid me out rather than because I was only in it for a couple of days. Um, they paid me out a daily rate, which was very hefty at that point. I was earning £200 a week in London at that point in my bar job. So it was like, you know, all my Christmases had come at once. Um, and finally, P- Penelope Wilton, who plays... Uh, uh, lady, Lady, Lady. Lady, Lady. <laughs> she was doing a show at the Arcola or Almeida or something, or something. And they ran... They stuffed up the time and she was in the scene that I was in. So they had to... Call, I had to shoot on another day, so I got another hefty fee. So thank you, Penelope. It was a, it worked out very well. Theatre actors go home and uh, and let us shoot another day. Um, what other work did you do in London? What did I do? Um, I, I kind of tried to hide from Australians for some reason. I just wanted to have my own individual experience. So there were lots of Aussies over there that I vaguely knew that made connections quite quickly, and I shut it down in a sense because I wanted to be by myself and meet my own mates but by the end I went well if I'm going to work I had there were lots of Australian companies and there was a great company called Ironbark that um, that did Australian work over there and we did a production of Reuben Guthrie which was hugely successful and I was supposed to be in the original production of that at Belvoir downstairs Belvoir and Wayne Blair sent me the script and I just finished doing Brendan Cowell's bed at the STC and I remember reading Wayne said, Brendan, I want you to do this play. And I remember opening up the script and arrogantly went, oh, it said Damien. And his character description was gay. And I went, oh, I'm not Brendan's go-to gay guy and just threw the script away. And then about a week, and Wayne called me a few times that week. And then after about a week, I finally read it. and went, oh, this is actually really good. And I called Wayne and said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'd love to do it. And he went, well, I've re- cast someone else. <laughs> So anyway, and then that was a big mistake because that went on and on and on. But anyway, I did the London production and finally got to play that Damien role. Um, but yeah, look, they don't love Australians in the UK. It's, it's a bit of a... Really? Tough. I think so. Mm-hmm. They don't want you to really do their accent unless you're playing a one-handed soldier. Um, I found, Someone described it to me as like, imagine if a British person came to Australia and got a role on Neighbours as an Australian. The uproar of that. And I went, oh, that, yeah, that makes sense. So they want you to do your Australian accent. Um, 
people who I know from Scotland and Ireland have issues just getting a British role because they're from Scotland and Ireland. Um, they're kind of protective on that. But yeah, it was a... I, I reminded myself after a year of going, oh, this is hard here, going, well, I'm not here just for acting. I'm here for life experience. So I started traveling a lot and partying a lot and meeting a lot of great people. Um, and that once I reminded myself of the reason I was there, I had a great time. So what brought you back to Australia? The visa ran out. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you had to come. I had to come home. Um, I was. I would. I reckon I'd go back there in a heartbeat if I could. Um, but yeah, um, my dad got sick as well. Thankfully, it happened literally after I'd booked my flight home, and then he had a stroke. So it worked out. Thanks, Dad, for kind of, kind of working around that time. Because if that had happened while I was over there having my three-year London experience, that would have been uh, cut short, I imagine. But yeah, the visa ran out. Simple as that. You've worked a lot with Siren Theatre Company and Kate Gall. Tell me about that relationship. Look, Kate's a Tasmanian also, so there's some form of connection there. Um, she's Kate's just someone that sees everything, so she's got a really great idea of who's out there. She doesn't kind of just, like some of the big professional companies, just hold on to their people and don't really delve out of that. So she sees a lot. So she'd seen me a lot in independent theatre. And then she was doing a show at the Ensemble with um, the late Mark Priestley. The Violet Hour? The Violet Hour. And Genevieve O'Reilly. It was a great cast. And she just got me into the room to read. But I think at that point she already knew she wanted me. So that was our first show together. And the thing about Kate, which she gets a bit of flack for, is that she's very, she can be really abrupt and blunt in rehearsal rooms. And I found it very scary the first couple of times I worked with her. Because she would say things... She'd just say the most vicious notes to you. And then, and you'd be reeling, thinking, oh, she's attacked my soul. What's happened here? And then, and I remember when we did Richard Third, and we worked together a few times by that point, she said something to me like, what are you, what, what were you doing with that? That was ridiculous. Please don't ever do that again. And, and I was like, oh gosh, oh God, I thought that was an interesting choice. And then two seconds later, we went for lunch and she just went, oh, what are we having for lunch? And in that moment, I went, that is the way we all should work. Yes. In the room, tussle it out. Don't be polite. Let's get the best performance. Let's, let's get the best art happening. And then once we're not in the room, let's be friends or not friends if we don't like each other. But Kate and I get on. We're very good friends now. But we, I think we've worked together nine times now. And I think we have a shorthand with each other. She trusts me. I trust her. Um, sometimes I have to say to her, can you please give me more vicious notes? Because I think because now she just kind of lets me do my thing. Um, but yeah, and yeah, I just we I think we appreciate each other because collaboration could be quite a prickly process. Yes, um, we've worked a lot together with just us, like one man type things, um, one person type things. Um, and I've seen her in the room with young with new actors when I've been in the room and talking to them the way she used to talk to me, and I go, oh god, that is so horrible to witness, and I'm kind of a I'm a person that goes to the person and I explain her process and then they go, okay, great. Um, it's not, she's vicious. She's just, she's just abrupt and kind of to the point. I mm. think that's what she mm. does so well. And I think that's why what she creates is always great. Well, you had a huge success with her. Um, was it last year, the year before with Mr. Man by Ender Walsh? Yeah. Um, a one person show. And, um, tell me about, the process with that how do you prepare for a one person show you're on stage all night I mean you only had recorded voices that you were interacting with which you were one of them I was one of them Mm. Um, uh, how is that is it it a lonely experience Um, I've had a few people ask me after the experience when they Emily Barclay who just did a one woman show at the STC was like what do I do what do I do I said get a great stage manager that you're friendly with because ultimately on stage even when you're acting with people, it can be isolating because unless you're dealing with an actor that is so in the moment and connected to you, which is very rare, you might have those actors, but they're having off days. They're thinking about certain things. It is an isolating experience. Anyway, you're creating your performance on stage, like the editor, director, actor at once. So you are by yourself on stage. So taking away the other people on stage, wasn't, wasn't it? It wasn't seemingly that different. Um, plus I played heaps of different characters. Um, 
and a, a lot of the lovely compliments of that show and the reviews were like said that oh I forgot there was one actor on stage so I've always been a pretty committed actor so throwing myself into the different characters maybe I tricked myself into thinking there were more people on stage um, but yeah it, there I had a great stage manager and then when we took the show to Edinburgh I made sure I had another Nate Edmondson who did the sound design actually was the operator for that show and we're good friends so it's about just kind of shaking it out before I'm not an actor that sits backstage and gets into the mindset before I go on I mean this guy in Mr. Man he kills a girl at the end of the show it's a pretty dark show um, I'm pretty loose I have a few affirmations I, I became a I, I used a lot of affirmations before Mr. Man and they were um, give a gift to the audience playing in my bedroom have fun be silly and it's just a play they're my four things I usually, I usually say, which takes the heat off. And I think the best actors out there are the ones that are silly and just play. Um, so I tried to achieve that every night. One, once in the first season of Mr. Man, I had a full-on panic attack. I think it was the night you were there, actually. Right. I was on stage screaming in my head. It was one of the most horrific experiences I've, I've ever had on stage. Um, I was going through all the movements. My mouth was working and... I was thinking how I'm not going to bow. I'm going to run off the stage and get into bed and just hide under the covers and not answer the phone for a few days. That's how intense the panic attack was on stage. And I came off stage and Kate came around the back and I burst into tears and she's not great with tears. (laughs) And she said, what's wrong? And I went, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that that happened. She said, what are you talking about? Go and see your therapist. And she walked off and I was kind of shocked as to why wouldn't she just say, yes, that was terrible come on keep going and then I walked out and I had a few people in that night and no one everyone was like that was fantastic it was and it it was a moment of going oh thank fuck for my training because the technique gets you through and since that point you know I have wobbly performances all that sort of stuff but I don't get in my head as much anymore as a performer because I that was it was me having a panic attack on stage for an hour and I have two dashes off stage and the rest of the time the audience's eyes are just on me so I couldn't escape or shake it off or anything um, that was pretty horrific so what led to that do you think we, did you do something different before the show that night or I don't know the reviews had come out and they were all lovely and the show was selling out there was nothing about it that would have triggered it apart from my own head I have no idea why it happened but I'm glad it did because it's, it's really kind of given me a break for everything else I just give myself a break before I go on stage um, and, and even if I have a little anxiety moment on stage, I just go breathe, breathe through it, let it go. So you took the show to Edinburgh Festival. Mm-hmm. How was that? It was as terrible and as great as everyone would imagine. <laughs> You're basically doing a show a day. They give you one day off in the entire month. So it's not like six shows a week. You're doing seven shows a week for four weeks and one day off the whole month. Um, we, there was a crew of seven of us sharing a two bedroom apartment. Nate and I, Nate Edmondson and I shared the lounge room. We drank like fishes. We ate chips and cheese every night. I mean, we weren't healthy and we were pan. I was doing two shows a day. I was doing my, um, Mr. Man in the afternoon. And then at 10 30 at night, I was doing my stand up comedy show one hander. Um, and plus we were seeing two shows a day as well. So it was a very intense the flyering is what kills you it's just demoralizing you've got to go out and promote your own show yeah and you're basically going five star theatre so you have to talk yourself up but everyone there gets five stars eventually because there's nine million bloggers so yeah you've got to promote your own show and I was I was surprised Edinburgh is very much a uni festival I thought I mean there's the um, Summer Hall and the Traverse Theatre which do some kind of fancy theatre stuff and dance stuff but the rest of the venues are really just full of comedians, tits out, dicks out, come come and see me, suck a cock. I mean, it's the, it's that trashy and stupid. It's, Mr. Man did very well considering. My comedy show was a tough sell. It was a very tough sell. Um, someone described it as like having a baby. You get pregnant and then you have the baby. I've never had a baby, obviously, but they say you go, you have the baby and you go, I will never do that again. And then all of a sudden you're pregnant again and you're organising your next... Edinburgh people get addicted to it because the energy of that town is unbelievable during that month um but yeah exhausting is what I would say the overall word is for the Edinburgh Fringe Festival 
Have you done much stand-up comedy? Why? How did the uh, y- your stand-up show come about? Um, when I was artistically deprived in London, I know I hadn't done anything for a while. I I did a festival. I did a little kind of show at um, one of the big at the Latitude Festival, um, and it was with a group of people I didn't really know. And I was kind of telling a few stories about people's reactions to my hand during my life, and and they were laughing a lot. Mum was like, "You need to do a stand-up comedy show about this." So um, a couple of weeks later, I plucked up the courage and went to an open mic night in Leicester Square, and did five minutes, and it went well. And then I left it for a long time, and then kind of was a bit artistically deprived again. And I remember like I was packing the shelves at the theatre, and I was just kind of sweating, going, "Oh, what am I doing?" And I remember grabbing my phone and running to the top of the theatre because there was no reception down there, and calling a venue and going, "I'd like to book a time and a slot." please and I did and I hung up and I went great now I have a objective here I have to get this done I don't really work unless there's a end point I'm, I'm pretty lazy but if there's an end point I'll create something so I did a full one hour stand up comedy show on the Battersea Barge um, in the Thames which is a great little cabaret comedy venue um, did that and then when Kate suggested taking Mr Man to Edinburgh I thought well I'll just tack that on and see how that goes as well yeah. Uh, you recently did your first musical, professional mm. musical. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the View Upstairs. Yes. How did you enjoy that? Because I know you're a bit of a show queen. I'm the biggest show queen there ever was. <laughs> so I, I guess a musical has been on your horizon for a while. Yeah. Well, I did, uh, I did musicals in that study. Of course, I did yeah. Gypsy. I played Tulsa in Gypsy. It was the most <laughs> horrific experience of my life. <laughs> shana, 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 turn. Doesn't he Horrible. sing and dance? Yeah. Yeah. I can after a lot of rehearsal, um, but look, yeah, Sean Rennie and Gus Murray just kind of offered me the role. It was a smaller role in this show, but I I've wanted to work at the Hayes for a while because I love what they're doing, and it was and it was a it was a really beautiful show, and it kind of um, really worked last year, especially kind of the 40th anniversary of Mardi Gras, and because the show's about this terrible kind of arson attack in New Orleans in the 70s where 30 something people died died at one of the gay clubs um um it wasn't a homophobic attack because it was actually a gay guy that lit the stairs on fire but it was still it still was just kind of covered by the um no one spoke about it um for so many years um and when the pulse nightclub attack happened it kind of came to the fore and this young new york composer wrote wrote this really beautiful musical um straight through um, of this young New York sassy queen that buys this burnt-out shell in New Orleans for his fashion studio and then gets this... The, the club comes to life in the 70s and he gets this kind of education about gay history from all these characters. Um, absurd, but but really, really beautiful. What do you love about musicals? Mm. I... Th- uh, everything, but I think... I saw Phantom of the Opera. Mum flew us to the mainland, flew me to the mainland, and I saw Phantom of the Opera when I was about nine, I think. And that I went, this is just... I don't... When someone sings... Well, I mean, musicals have a bad rap with there's lots of bad acting. And yes, there's terrible acting in a lot of musicals, but I don't really care because it's flashy and lights. I remember actually getting a VHS copy of Into the Woods, the Bernadette Peters um, filming... Mm -hmm one day when I was doing Ruddy Gore with the GNS Society and I went home on a Sunday and I watched it four times back to back and I it was the moment of like oh acting can be unbelievably truthful and brilliant within a musical so that I think that still stands as my favourite musical just because of that moment Joanna Gleeson she won the Tony won the Tony and when she does that song just before she gets killed it's unbelievable and Bernadette is phenomenal I mean if I go to New York, I've been to New York four times now, I see musicals as much as I can. So last time I went after Edinburgh for six days and I saw eight musicals. Fantastic. I don't go and see plays. I do plays, but I won't go and see them. <laughs> I find plays boring. <laughs> so what are your favourite musicals at the moment? Um, look, I loved Dear Evan Hansen last year. I'd seen a bootleg copy, so um, I kind of cheated that way. I loved that. Um, it's pretty special, isn't it? I saw, I saw it off Broadway. 
Did you? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Early on, so... Because um, I'm interested to know, he didn't get any Drama Desk nomination or anything for that. What was his... Was his performance less than it was? Or had Not at all. Well, I didn't see it move to Broadway, but it was quite extraordinary. Yeah, I can imagine. Anyway, off topic. Um, P- Parade, I think, is a phenomenal musical. Um, but the one show that I didn't know that I saw, and I didn't see Bet, I saw um, Donna Murphy, was Hello, Dolly!, and I got a $50 ticket because Bet was off that week. I sat up in the gods and I burst into tears about eight times just from the sheer force of seeing... There's something special about being in New York watching a musical. Well, sh- and, and a musical from the, the golden era. Yes, mm. and that was done spectacularly when they all stepped out for put on your Sunday clothes and just give it... Like, that's the thing. What I discovered living in the UK people are fighting for their jobs on Broadway so they're every night phenomenal I think sometimes they're a bit lazy in matinees if, if all those little remember those little white pieces of slips of the covers come flying oh, yes, out of the yeah, playbill yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but on the West End they seem to be a little bit lax um, so yeah Broadway and especially that show I mean I think they were all counting their lucky stars that they're in a show with Bette Midler even though she was off that week Donna Murphy's and you want two Tonys? She's, yeah, she'll, be, she'll do. Yeah, absolutely. And she yeah. was great as well. Um, yeah. So what about uh, roles in musicals? Are there any that you covered? I'd love to play the baker in yeah. Into the Woods. Um, I'd like to do um, Parade. Um, oh, God, I can't think of his name now. I think I'd have to lose a bit of weight for that one. Um, and I wouldn't mind having a crack at Bobby in company. I'm the right age now. I'd have to get my top A out there. But I reckon I could bring some kind of acting chops to that role. And Brilliant, because I've always wanted to play Joanne. Great. <laughs> well, let's book a venue right now. Let me pick my phone. Bring Kate. <laughs> They're doing it at some kind of amateur thing. I don't know at the moment. But there's an all-female version. No, actually, it's not all-female, but they have changed genders in a production in London. Yeah, with Patty. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Patty is Joanne. She is Joanne. Uh, uh, she just is Joanne, isn't she? There's, there's diversity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tom, thank you for talking to us today on stages. Um, you're a terrific actor and always um, a great joy to watch on stage. So continued success. Thank you very much, Pete. <laughs> there you go. That was Tom Campbell and uh, a lot of fun to, uh, to catch up with Tom. Keep up to date with every new guest episode as it is released by subscribing to Stages. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts and through Wooshka. And please take the time to rate and review the podcast in the iTunes directory. It helps us grow the audience and reach more Stages listening. I'm Peter Ayers. Catch you next time on Stages. Stages.